Welcome back to the Geopolitical Outlook for 2024. This is part two of our Geopolitical Review. In the last Geopolitical Review, we talked about the three-way competition of who will control the world and everything in it and radically alter everything about our lives that was described years ago in the 1990 book Keys of This Blood by Malachi Martin. Today I'd like to talk more about the methods and the details of the progress that's been made, how it has affected America. Could you elaborate a little bit more on each of these competing systems and how that competition has played out so far? In order to understand these competing systems, because they've evolved since 1990, it's a little bit difficult to understand them unless we go back to 1990 and see what they looked like at the time. So I think it would be helpful to try to remember what the situation was at the time. Now the book names the three competitors as Russia, the West and the Pope. And thinking about these three, we immediately see it doesn't make any sense to say that Russia, which is a fairly small country in terms of population and economy, has the resources and manpower to directly run any kind of new world order on a day-to-day basis, let alone the Pope, who has even less resources required to run a world government. So these players do not represent individuals, but actually they represent different socio-political systems that are capable of global dominance. So let's have a look at them. Now, the first one is the system championed by the United States, which is a democratic capitalist system. And its plan is to have all the other nations under its influence and subject to its financial control, which means having the best democracy that money can buy. Now, um, the multipolar world order championed by Russia is where each nation is independent from each other and they all have different social, economic and political systems, but they all cooperate on the basis of mutual respect to achieve peace and prosperity at the international level. The system that is championed by the Vatican is described in the book, Keys of this Blood, and even the current Pope has mentioned it many times, is really a Marxist neo-fuel system. The book, Keys of this Blood, describes it as being based on a critical theory approach to Marxism known as Gramskyism. And it's still Marxism, encapsulating all of the elements, the abolition of private property, the upending of cultural and social norms, the forfeiting of individual rights in favour of state rights, the abandoning of democratic principles in favour of rule by some elite group. Now, most visibly, this system is currently being heavily promoted by Klaus Schwab's World Economic Forum based in Europe. And I need to clarify that while Marxism is traditionally seen as being incompatible with feudalism, experiments with communism over the last hundred years have shown that the Marxist ideal is not achievable or sustainable in practice without some kind of compromises. What's proposed here is a hybrid feudal neo-Marxist system with two privileged classes one being the church and the other being the civil elite rulers as the proposed form of the New World Order. To get a better understanding of each of these three systems, 
We really need to go back and look at the state of the grand chessboard in the year 1990 when the book was published. The Ronald Reagan presidency had just finished. Having been brought to power by the religious right, also known as the moral majority as it called itself, the United States at the time was virtually at the zenith of its moral, political and economic power. In fact, it was proclaimed to be the sole superpower in the world. It's at this point at which the final offensive of the competition begins in serious, because the competition has actually been going on a lot longer before 1990. But in 1990, the intensity of the competition was stepped up. Now, most conservatives nostalgically point back to that era as the time when traditional American economic, social and moral values were better realised. And it's these values that represent what the Vatican saw as the main competitor to its preferred system. Reagan's successor, Herbert Walker Bush, made some rather pertinent comments at the time. In a January 1991 address before joint session of the Congress on the State of the Union, he made the sensational declaration confirming that the game for the establishment of the New World Order was on. He said, quoting, I come to this house of the people to speak to you and all Americans, certain that we stand at a defining hour. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order, where diverse nations are drawn together in common cause to achieve the universal aspirations of mankind, end quote. And I remember him making that statement. At the time, it created sensation in all sectors of society. But of course, since nothing apparently happened within the few years following his statement, everybody just forgot about it. That's because they didn't understand the nature of the New World Order and they didn't understand the nature of the process by which that New World Order was going to be brought about. On the other side of the aisle, the other competing system is that of the Vatican at the time of John Paul II, a religious conservative. Now, as we mentioned last time, the Vatican does not compete alone but through an alliance with the ruling elite which it refers to as the Sword of the Church. And this alliance was once upon a time called the Holy Roman Empire, but that was destroyed in 1798 by Napoleon. And since then, the Vatican has been working to regain its geopolitical power. And to do this, it needed to resurrect in some form a modern version of the Holy Roman Empire. And these efforts have been going on step by step for a very long time. And by 1957, had actually begun to take shape in the form of the Treaty of Rome, which created the European Economic Union, designed to be a springboard for the political union of Europe. And that was accomplished beginning with the signing of the Single European Act four years before the book was published, at which time Portugal and Spain also joined the political union. And the political integration of Europe was against the will of some of its member states but was formally accomplished nonetheless by the Maastricht Treaty of 1992, two years after the book was published under the enthusiastic support of the Vatican. And we now direct our attention to Russia in 1990. Following the fall of Soviet Union, rejection of communism, we see what is left is a nation composed of a federation of autonomous republics, each with their own constitutions, legislation, official languages, national anthems and ethnic cultures. The 1993 constitution of the Russian Federation begins, quote, 
We, the multinational people of the Russian Federation, united by a common fate on our land. And the Constitution goes on to protect the rights to private property, to private business, to entrepreneurial pursuits. It guarantees freedom of speech, religion and ideology. Article 2 of the Constitution says, that, quote, man, his rights and freedom shall be the supreme value. The recognition and observance and protection of human and civil rights and freedom shall be an obligation of state, end of quote. So what we see in Russia is a cooperation of diverse autonomous republics that want to preserve the individual character and respect the rights and character of other republics and the people in those republics. And this is essentially the basis for the multipolar world order, which Putin wants to have applied at the global level. Now, as we mentioned, in 1990, America was at the peak of its power, working to impose its order on the world, while at the same time, other forces working within the United States to overturn its existing internal order. The Vatican was just beginning to re-establish its order on the states of Europe, and through it gaining greater global political and economic influence and direct control of the United Nations policies and determination. The Soviet Union, on the other hand, had just collapsed and lost its international influence and power, and hence the various Russian states agreed to form a mutually beneficial federation. At this point in the competition, America is the strongest militarily and economically, but the EU is rapidly rising and Russia was essentially down, but not completely out of the game. But that represents the three different competitors on which to model the new world order. Okay, so you spoke about the fact that Russia is a federation, and so is America. What is the main difference between these federations? Well, all three systems claim to protect human rights and guarantee freedoms, so the differences between them are actually fairly subtle. But at the same time, they're very fundamental. Because government is all about control. And so the question of who ultimately has control is really what defines the differences between them. And to understand that, we need to consider four different questions. First question is, does the government have the right to grant and regulate individual rights or not? Secondly, who has executive control over the machinery of the state to protect those rights or impose restrictions? Thirdly, what is the relationship between business organisations or corporate organisations and the state? And finally, what is the relationship between religious organisations and the state? And the first of these four questions is most important because it's the issue of primacy. Is the state subject to its people or are the people subject to the state? If your rights are granted by the state, then they can be modified, curtailed, or denied by the state. If your rights are not granted by the state, then the state has no ability to either grant you new rights or deny you existing rights. And in this context, we see that in America, primacy belongs to the people, not the government. In Europe, the people have no primacy at all. And in Russia, primacy belongs to the government, again, the constitution although it tries to elevate the rights of people to be equal with the Constitution. The second question addresses the issue of theory versus practice, because the law can say one thing in theory, but if the agencies of government refuse to enforce the law in practice, what the law says is completely irrelevant. 
So the question is about the implementation of the rule of law. The third and fourth questions address the question of the ability of external parties to influence or have indirect control over the government. This is important because whoever then controls the state controls your rights. If business or religious organisations control the state, then your rights will be subject to their interests. For example, if the manufacturers of certain pharmaceutical products buy influence over governments, then your right to refuse medical treatments can be taken away to create demand for those treatments and increase profits for their manufacturers. If the providers of certain socio-religious services have influence over the government, then you can be taxed against your will to support these private institutions, which you may disagree with. So if we look at each of the three competing systems from this perspective, we can begin to see the differences. The United States Republic, as originally conceived, was a limited form of government having no authority to regulate your rights. The executive is under the control of a democratically elected president, so in theory there is little ability for business, or oligarchs as we would call them in Russia, or religious bodies to exert any control over its citizens. Until recently in practice, this has worked fairly well in regard to the separation of church and state, but it has failed miserably in regard to the separation of corporation and state. Because the United States government is small, it is easily captured by corporate and other outside interests. Now, when the Constitution was framed in 1798, churches had been manipulating the affairs of states for thousands of years, but corporations were then virtually unknown. At the time, they had no rights under the law, but they've come a long way since then. Some corporations have more money than many countries. Now, if we look at the EU, it suffers from what is referred to as a democratic deficit because it's not a traditional parliamentary democracy and it's not a federation of states and has a rather aristocratic character to its government. The government has three key institutions, but only one of those three is directly elected by the people. The European Commission is appointed and the European Council of Ministers is composed of presidents and ministers from its constituent states, which may themselves not have been elected. Its meetings are held behind closed doors and there are no minutes or proceedings made available to the public. The unelected commission has executive control over the government and is responsible for proposing legislation, which is typically approved by the council. The only time the democratically elected parliament gets involved is in share over the control of the budget with the council and in some rare instances can also approve legislation proposed by the commission. The EU also has a strong commitment to promoting its view of government and human rights globally. The European Charter of Human Rights grants the government the right to grant, update, interpret and hence deny human rights based on its own interests and is driven by St Thomas Aquinas' theory of the common good. Due to its democratic deficit, its interests are invariably influenced by powerful private institutions. Moreover, the European Union is still a work in progress, and its destiny is to become a modern, technologically enhanced revival of the ancient Holy Roman Empire. Unlike the European Union, the Russian Federation model of government is essentially democratic, and like the United States, has a democratically elected president who has executive control over the machinery of the state. However, its president has greater power to organise other sectors of the government. Now, while the rights 
granted in the US Constitution were originally a set of restrictions on federal power, not state power. The Russian Constitution explicitly commits the federal government to protect a far greater array of liberties and rights for its citizens than does the US Constitution, including a right to a social safety net, a right to housing and higher education if they can pass competitive entry exams, a right to health care, and a right to compensation for the victims of crime. The entire goal of the Russian Constitution is to ensure economic and social stability for its peoples via a big government rather than a limited government approach. And this makes it more difficult for the government to be captured by corporate, religious or foreign interests. Because being bigger, it takes a lot more effort and resources to do so. While the Russian Federation is democratic and while rights are equal to the constitution, because it has much greater presidential power, if that model is extended globally, as is proposed by Putin's multipolar world order, the presidency of the world will have vast powers to organise and regulate society. Uh, What that means is that whoever is the world's president would ostensibly have the power to force changes to the constitution, limiting and reducing the rights that are protected, and or the presidential powers are subject to abuse by a president under the influence of some other private interest, such that the enforcement of the constitutional rights and liberties granted to the people can effectively be taken away in practice while still being maintained in theory. So this is one of the risks of the Russian multipolar world order. Um, It assumes that the president is working in good faith. So in summary, in America, we see that individual rights stand outside of and above its constitution. In Russia, individual rights stand equal to being a part of its constitution. In the EU, individual rights stand below the constitution. The EU constitution gives rights with one hand and takes them away with the other. It states that the rights of the community supersede that of individuals and that laws can be made to restrict the exercise of individual rights. So the EU form of government stands out in contrast to both American and Russian democracies. Having been created by invisible private interests, it has no protection against their continued control over the state. The American government has protections against being captured by religious but not corporate interests, and the Russian government is better protected against being captured by private interests but is more subject to abuse of presidential power. So you've spoken about the structure, I guess, of these three competitors, but what are their strengths and weaknesses and what do their prospects look like in this competition? From the perspective of the three-way competition, America is losing the battle against corporate capture being coordinated by the globalist World Economic Forum out of Europe. One could say the battle is lost and that the populist pushback in the form of the Make America Great Again movement led by Trump is in its final throes. The president of the European Central Bank, Christine Lagarde, complained about Trump pushing back against these European interests. She says, quote, If we draw lessons from history, by which I mean to say the manner in which he, Trump, carried out the first four years of his mandate, it is clearly a threat. 
It is enough to look at trade tariffs, the commitment of NATO, the fight against climate change, and that in these three areas alone in the past, US interests were not aligned with those of Europe. So while Europe sees a Trump candidacy as a threat, a threat to the agenda that it has been successfully pushing over America for some time. The other thing we need to note, other than the risk of corporate capture, is that America is very sensitive to economic weakness. So America's economic strength is actually also its greatest risk. Because the American government requires popular support, in a scenario of serious economic weakness, the US will lose against the European Union. The economic war between America and Europe has been going on in secret. And you won't hear about it in the daily news. This is one area where it is being attacked from both within and without. Within through economic mismanagement and without through the push to dump the US dollar as the world reserve currency that we mentioned last time. Oddly enough, it was not Russia or China that initiated attack on the uh, reserve status of the US dollar, but it was the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. Now, the IMF is a global institution, one in which the European Union has one and a half times more votes than does the United States, four times as many votes as China, and about nine times more votes than Russia. And so this essentially European control institution created a synthetic alternative reserve currency to the United States dollar, known as special drawing rights, or SDRs, made up of a basket of currencies. And so it was actually Europe that initiated this whole process. America fought back against the European Union by destroying the Nord Stream pipeline, the direct result of which has been permanent loss of long-established industries in Germany and falling standards of living due to higher energy costs. The average German now uses less energy than they did 45 years ago, and energy consumption is directly linked to economic prosperity. This setback, however, won't have much impact on the outcome of this competition. And that is because the power of the EU government does not extend from its peoples. So it's not subject to their popular support. While economic warfare may impoverish the state and its people, it will not weaken the government. The EU can only be defeated by attacking the powerful private interests that control it from behind the scenes, but doing so is very difficult. On the other hand, Russia is much more insular, and so it's difficult for its government to be captured by private interests. And all the sanctions being imposed on Russia by America and the European Union is just another more intense replay of events in 1989 when America and the Vatican teamed up to bring about the economic collapse of the Soviet Union. But this time it's going to take a lot more money and effort on the part of America and Europe to defeat Russia. And the question is, how much can they afford to pay? And for how long can they afford to keep it up? So these weaknesses are being externally attacked by each competitor, but, but as Sun Tzu says in his Ancient Art of War, if you actually have to enter an open conflict, you've already lost. So are there any measures being taken to defeat the enemy from within? Well, actually, most of the competition is from within. And you may or may not remember that a lot of things began to change in America immediately. And I'm going to focus on America because uh, we're much more privy to what's been going on there. A lot of things began to change immediately after the publication of the book in 1990. These changes all have the hallmark 
of classical Marxist revolution. Now, Marxist revolution works by overturning the cultural, economic and political foundations of society. And it does so by creating one or more class struggles regarding presumed social conditions, whether real or imagined. Now, when we talk about class struggles, we're not talking necessarily about the rich versus poor. We're talking about any issue that can be exploited to divide society. Just like you can have different classes of fish. You know, he's got scales and the other one doesn't have scales. And so the whole point is that we cannot introduce a new world order unless you first overturn all the core principles of the existing order. And in the case of the West, these principles stem from four main sources. Firstly, our social morals come from our Judeo-Christian heritage. Our free markets and economic principles come from capitalism. Our democratic governance is Greco-Roman. And the rule of law comes from the Magna Carta. A successful revolution necessitates overturning each of these areas. And it does so by following a textbook approach. First, the class struggle needs to be initiated. And that happens by representing those who disagree with some part of these four principles as being oppressed victims. Then the suffering caused by this claim injustice needs to be agitated and promoted in order to achieve popular support for the abandonment or rejection of the existing principles so as to achieve social justice. Often this agitation is done without providing any viable alternative to the existing system. The second step in Marxist revolution is to discriminate against all those who want to conserve the existing order in favour of those that reject it. And this can take any form, including cancelling people, debanking them, rejecting merit-based systems for quota-based systems, the selective application of law, normalising and legalising what used to be crime, criminalising criticism of the agenda as a hate crime. The final step in fomenting revolution is the elimination of what's left of the by now completely demoralised existing order through violent means in the form of violent protests and other forms of civil strife. And this is done to show that the existing order is no longer workable. It cannot provide neither peace nor safety and must be replaced by something else. Neither the average person nor the protester has any idea about what that something else might be. But those who have orchestrated the revolution do. And at that point, they step forward to take charge and impose their order on the chaos. As they say, order out of chaos. Now, these three steps are designed to create dissatisfaction with the existing social order among all sides of the population. And impossible ideals are used as a carrot to gain public support of the large section of the public who doesn't care and is uncommitted to any particular view. The key to successful revolution is that the end goal, the desired outcome, is never truly revealed. Otherwise, the general public would not be willing participants in the revolution. Now, the book, The Keys of the Blood, reveals that it is either the Vatican or Russia that is behind the Marxist revolution that is currently taking place in America. But the hard reality is that very little Marxism remains in post-Soviet Russia. It tried and failed. 
On the other hand, the neo-Marxism promoted by the Vatican is a new twist on an old idea that few people really understand. We need to ask which of these two competitors has the ability to influence all levels of the US political, economic and legal system and a plethora of non-government organisations to be able to carry out this kind of revolution. To understand what's involved in this, let's consider another statement from President Herbert Walker Bush that he made the year before the book was published in 1989 in his inaugural address. He said, quote, I have spoken of a thousand points of light, of all the community organisations that are spread like stars throughout the nation doing good. We will work hand in hand, encouraging, sometimes leading, sometimes being led, rewarding. We will work on this in the White House, in the cabinet agencies. I will go to the people and the programs that are the brighter points of light. I will ask every member of my government to become involved. The old ideas are new again because they are not old, they are timeless. Duty, sacrifice, commitment and a patriotism that finds its expression in taking part and pitching in, end quote. And so from this we can see how the good work of creating this new world order is being carried out. At every level, in every organisation of the land, there are points of supposed light working tirelessly to bring about this new world order. A few work knowingly, most however work ignorantly. Some work in high places, some in low places, but all network together in a myriad of different ways, each pushing on different parts of the revolutionary agenda. Some openly, some secretly, some Democrats, some Republicans, some liberals, some conservatives, some globalists, some nationalists. They're everywhere working tirelessly, sacrificially, according to their patriotic duty to remake America into an image of the feudal beast that was of old, but has become new again, a beast that is being resurrected from the past, as we discussed last time. And it's the patriotic duty because they see that as the ideal for America. They sincerely believe that remaking America along the principles espoused by the European Union is a far better model than that of its existing constitution. For example, we can clearly see that today abolishing the freedom of speech via censorship is seen by many in America as a desirable path forward. Many see that a form of government which is less democratic and subject to control by populists such as Donald Trump is a preferred way forward. Well, they may prefer the Marxist system, but if it bears any resemblance to past Marxist revolutions, it may be effective, but it's nothing ideal. Well, it might not be ideal for the people and the nation, but it's very ideal for the elite who control the system. What are some concrete examples of this revolution taking place in America? Well, there's possibly lots and lots of different examples we can cite. We'll just touch on a few of them. Uh, let's, for example, consider the normalisation of homosexuality. And this is one of those class struggles that is being used. And we only have to look at the dates associated with when this became an issue. In December 1988, essentially a year before the book was published, the World Health Organisation organised the first World AIDS Day to bring awareness to the plight of homosexuals. 
And the AIDS epidemic was the catalyst to bring homosexuality out of the closet and into the open and to engender sympathy towards them. Then, about a year later, in 1990, President George Walker Bush signed the Ryan White Care Act, which is a federally funded program for people living with AIDS. A year later, in 1991, in New York, a red ribbon is adopted as a symbol of awareness and compassion for those living with AIDS. And then, two years after that, in December 1993, the Department of Defense issues a directive prohibiting the US military from barring applicants from service based on their sexual orientation. And so we see the ball at this point is now rolling, and the scene was set for class struggle between proponents of traditional families and proponents of alternative lifestyle. The whole AIDS epidemic was very carefully used to manoeuvre homosexuality out of the closet and make it a matter for public compassion and sympathy. What most people don't, don't know or, and or may not remember is that at the time there was a lot of controversy about the origin of AIDS. But most importantly of all was that almost all of the deaths attributed to AIDS were in fact caused by the use of AZT a controversial drug approved by no one else than Dr. Anthony Fauci. Does that in any way sound familiar to what's been happening recently? It's intriguing to wonder whether the whole affair was engineered at the expense of individual homosexuals just to further the revolutionary class struggle. At the same time, in 1990, we see another attack on the US order of things. In 1990, Congress passes the Hate Crime Statistic Act tasking the FBI with collecting and reporting any evidence of prejudice based on race, religion, sexual orientation or ethnicity. Another point was to try to get sufficient awareness and support for the need for criminalising certain speech and introducing hate crime legislation. Against much public resistance, it took about 20 years for the Hate Crimes Prevention Act to be passed. And then in 2021, for the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act, provided federal funding for hate crimes reporting hotlines and expanding the ability for monitoring and persecuting hate crime. So again, we see that the issue was very slowly created to a point where it's now assumed a prominent place in the public discourse. Another example is that of racism. In the case of interracial police homicides, the long-term trend across the board is down. And if we use the interracial crime statistics as an indication of the true amount of racism in America, we can actually discover, and these figures come from the US Department of Justice, we see that at least since 1980, interracial homicide by a stranger has been essentially stable, of which 8% is white on black homicide, and 19% is black on white homicide. Yet due to the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, one would be led to believe that racism against blacks is a critical and growing issue. But it is clearly being used to create yet another class struggle as a prelude to a neo-Marxist revolution in America and also in other Western nations. And what we see happening in America also happens to America's dependencies, or what we call American client states, like Australia, for example. That many leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement openly identify as Marxists should not be a surprise to anybody. And so all of these issues seem to come out of nowhere following 1990. But we can also turn to the economy and see exactly the same game at play. 
In response to the Black Monday stock market crash of 1987, Ronald Reagan appointed Alan Greenspan to be chairman of the Federal Reserve. Now, Alan Greenspan immediately turned away from the sound monetary policy of the past and began what's known as an easy monetary policy, which created successive asset bubbles, starting with the dot-com bubble that burst in the year 2000 and then the subprime mortgage crisis that burst in 2008. Now, what Greenspan did, instead of printing money, which causes inflation, the Federal Reserve resorted to loaning a large amount of money to businesses and the government. So much so that the corporate and government national debt exploded. And since World War II, the highest government debt contributed by any preceding president was only about $300 billion, but Ronald Reagan blew that out of the water by borrowing $1.86 trillion. And the amount has gone up ever since. W. Bush borrowed $6.1 trillion, Obama borrowed $8.3 trillion, and Trump borrowed $8.2 trillion. And the total of debt now is sits at about $34 trillion, or about $264,000 per taxpayer, meaning that the United States is essentially bankrupt. And as soon as the government cannot borrow any money, the entire economy will collapse. And this is because somewhere between 36 to 50% of all the economic activity in developed countries, such as America, is only because of government spending based on government borrowing. As soon as the government stops spending, a little less than about half of the money that is currently flowing in the economy stops. And when that stops, it causes a huge rise in unemployment, and failure of many businesses. And at the same time the Federal Reserve was loaning lots of money to the corporation and the government, there was a push to deregulate Wall Street banks and repeat key provisions of legislation introduced in the Great Depression to try to maintain economic stability, known as the Glass-Steagall Act. And this was finally abolished by the Financial Services Modernisation Act of 1999. The abolishment of the Glass-Steagall Act created a class struggle between what's known as Wall Street and Main Street, or the bankers and the, you know, the people. And this became apparent when Wall Street banks were deemed too big to fail and were bailed out of public expense, while small businesses were allowed to go bankrupt. What this did is it created, and this led to the creation of the Occupy Wall Street movement as an example of class struggle. However, the problem with the the Occupy Wall Street movement is that its agenda wasn't completely aligned with their goals, so it had to be disbanded. But the most important aspect is that for the first time, profits were selectively privatised while losses were socialised. And this injustice, done for the common good of a few elite bankers, has since become normalised, as we saw with Silicon Valley Bank last year. And now, unless you are in the privileged class, you now have to pay for the malfeasance of the bankers with your own money, either directly through what's known as a bail-in or indirectly via a government bail-out, which you pay for with your taxes. Most people don't realise that whatever money they have in the bank no longer belongs to them, but actually belongs to the bank. And what that does is undermine trust in the financial sector. And when trust is gone, there will be a run on the banks, which will cause the collapse of the entire economy. And eliminating a run on the banks is part of the reason for the global push to introduce central bank digital currencies, which are controlled by the government, not the individual. Not only has the entire foundation of our economic system been undermined and is hanging by a shoestring, but our political system has as well. 
The highly visible political corruption in the United States at all levels is now as extensive, if not more so, than many tin pot banana republics. A recent Pew Research survey found that public trust in the US government is now just 15%, falling from 54%, falling from 54% in the 1990s. This is not helped by the, the falsehoods repeated by the government regarding Saddam Hussein's fictional weapons of mass destruction, and more recently by the official falsehoods that have been exposed regarding COVID-19 and the mRNA jabs. Another survey found that 38% of Americans have little to no confidence in their electoral processes. As we noted last time, between one third to one quarter of Americans now question the viability of democracy as a form of government. I believe the events of this year surrounding the election are going to make the political sentiment much worse. Possibly bad enough to open the door to military coup of some kind or some civil war. People wonder about what happened in the 2020 presidential election and its aftermath. Why there were no investigations, no resolution to the many legal challenges and the events that followed January 6th. The reason is that the whole affair was carefully engineered to achieve one goal. And that goal was class struggle between Democrats and Republicans. See, now the Republicans feel unjustly treated at the hands of Democrats through the court system and the Department of Justice. And the documented continuing political persecution of Republicans and absolving the crimes of high-level Democrats further aggravates the situation. The whole purpose is to undermine the rule of law, to encourage the complete overthrow of the existing legal and judicial system. While the weaponization of the legal system can be traced back to the 1950s, McCarthy's House Commission on Un-American Activities, it was quickly brought to an end by the Supreme Court at the time and disappeared until 1992 when it began to be weaponized again. Not this time against the Marxists, but against conservatives, beginning with the events surrounding Ruby Ridge and Randy Weaver, and the events the year after that at Waco against the Branch Davidians. And this trend of weaponizing the legal system against conservatives has continued leading up to the Bundy Ranch standoff in 2014 and the Nevada standoff in 2016, and is now common practice. So what we see is that all the foundations of American society are being simultaneously overturned. Its morals, its economy, its system of laws, its political processes, in order to make way for the planned New World Order. Rather than trying to impose a new order on an old population, wouldn't it be easier to create a new population that is much more favourable and accepting of the new order. And isn't it true that the best time to shape a person is when they're young through their education and their religious upbringing? Well, that's true. Mm. It's much easier to introduce change when people want it than to force it on them. And education and religion are actually the two most important foundations of society because they shape a nation's outlook, a nation's character and its future. Now, because these two elements are largely hidden away from the view of the grown-up population, they have been targets of the revolution for a very, very long time. Educational and religious institutions were the first targets 
And once these were captured, their influence was then turned against society as a whole. Education has a long history of contention between what's called the progressive and traditional approaches. Even before 1900, progressive, like the very influential John Dewey, believed that education was less about imparting knowledge than about reconstructing society, and that schools must be empowered to perform this reconstruction. And that was slowly underway through different teaching approaches and teaching agendas. But in 1989, again, the year before Keys of This Blood was published, the United Nations created the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which fundamentally changed the way that children were viewed and treated. They were no longer to be the objects of parental protection and care, but were now to be seen as distinct legal entities independent of parental control. What this did is it freed the hand of the progressive educators so they could shift school away from ostensibly being the means for providing education to being a means for providing social services directly to children independently from parents. And as a result, schools focused less on academic achievement and more on social justice. In this environment, empirical testing becomes racist and entry into and success at university is no longer based on merit but on subjective social justice criteria. Mathematics, for example, is considered racist unless it's taught in the context of social, political and other issues. This is all documented in the book Brave New Schools, published in 1995, and describes how, as a result, myths, feelings and imagination replaced facts, logic and history in schools. Not just any myths and feelings and imagination, but those that relate to social justice, to class struggles, with a view to indoctrinating children with revolutionary thinking so that they reject traditional norms and social structures. So since 1990, schools have become the breeding grounds for neo-Marxist revolutionaries. And it's a similar story with religion. Just as school education today would not have been recognisable 100 years ago, churches of today would not have been recognisable back then either. The two are somewhat interlinked. Along with the shift in the focus of education, away from reading, writing and arithmetic to undermining traditional values and creating agents of revolution, came a sudden and notable drop in religious affiliation of 18 to 35-year-olds. From 1990 to 1998, Christianity fell by 14% and atheism gained by 12%. And this decline has continued steadily ever since. What is interesting is not that religion is being rejected, but that Christianity is being displaced by the religions of evolutionism, climate changeism, and other such pseudoscientific isms, and whose dogmas cannot be questioned and any dissenters are treated as heretics. Now, education may have had a hand in this falling away, but the real cause is changes within Christianity itself. We need to consider why it is that church attendance and daily prayer of those who do consider themselves Christians has also been falling since then. And the answer is that the Christianity of today, mostly within Protestantism, is no longer the Christianity of old. What has changed? Well, lots of things have changed, but essentially the answer is humanism. Indeed, humanism is deeply intertwined with what is known as progressive Christianity, which is seen as a key vehicle for social transformation, just like progressive education. 
So it becomes clear that Christian humanism is just like homosexuality, like racism, like economic mismanagement, like the debasing of the currency, political corruption, is just a tool for bringing about a revolution, first within Christianity itself and then within society as a whole. And like with these other issues, we can trace how the principles of Marxist revolution has been used within Christian churches by class struggle to great effect since the late 1980s. This has taken slightly different forms depending on the idiosyncrasies of the various denominations. But the one thing they have in common is that they all rob Christianity of its spirituality and power, leaving it ineffective and hence largely irrelevant in the world today. And this is the real reason why young people are dropping out of Christianity and why church attendance of older Christians is declining. A key thrust of the humanistic attack on biblical Christianity was the introduction of modern psychology into Christianity. Modern psychology looks no deeper than the soul of man for answers to man's problems. It totally ignores the spiritual realms. It's about seeking man for answers rather than directly seeking God for help. The main principles of modern psychology is that lowest self-esteem is the cause of our problems. But since we are the victims of our environment, others, not ourselves, bear the responsibility for our misguided actions and guilt, which leads to our low self-esteem. So modern psychology is focused on the building up of self, on eliminating the convictions of the Holy Spirit. His role is to convict the world of sin. It's about loving oneself first and foremost. It's about forgiving oneself instead of seeking Christ's forgiveness. The merging of modern psychology with Christianity was first promoted in recent times by the 1989 book, again, note the year, called Wisdom and Humanness in Psychology, Prospects for a Christian Approach, by philosopher C. Stephen Evans. In the early 1990s, a broad range of monopsychological thinking and practices flooded into Christian churches, including the use of covert hypnosis in the form of neuro-linguistic programming. You've mentioned Christian humanism. What exactly does this term mean? It almost seems paradoxical that it can be such a thing as Christian humanism. Well, essentially, humanism is placing one's confidence in and relying on man rather than God to do good. Webster's International Dictionary defines humanism as, quote, a belief calling itself religious but substituting faith in man for faith in God, unquote. Christian humanism does not deny faith in God, but has redefined what faith means to make it possible to be a Christian with faith in God and a humanist at the same time. According to this new definition, faith is primarily confidence in man's efforts and ability to achieve good with God's help in a secondary capacity. It doesn't completely set God aside. But faith is mostly relegated to trusting and hoping that I can do it, and if I can't do it for some reason, God will step in to save me from my failures. And Christian humanism provides a spectrum of at what point God will step in and what he can or is willing to do at that point. So faith for Christian humanists is not primarily about earnestly seeking for God's guidance and help to do what is right, but it is about doing what they presume is right and then believing, hoping and trusting that God will come to their help to save them from failure or from the consequences of failure if needed at some point. What is called faith by Christian humanists is actually presumption. 
Because for them, faith is a certain confidence of salvation based on their own adherence to certain beliefs and actions rather than confidence in God's righteousness that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, as Hebrews 11.6 tells us. This shift in the definition of faith is very subtle. But it's not just faith that humanism has redefined. Along with it, many other key Christian concepts such as repentance, grace, the new birth and works in the Christian life have also been redefined. And by these, the essential character of Christianity has been completely changed. The facade still remains, but the core is something different altogether. For example, the new birth used to be about a realisation of our inherent corruption and our need and desire for God's sustaining grace to avoid evil. The humanist view of the new birth instead focuses on accepting certain doctrines or following a ritual at some point by which one is saved and hence no longer has to worry about his inherent corruption nor the evil that one does. It used to be about a realisation of man's ongoing need of God's sustaining grace and now it is about what man can do by which to escape this ongoing need of God's help. Similarly, grace used to be defined as the influence of the Holy Spirit on the heart, constantly granting to man the gifts of faith and repentance, by which means to enter heaven. Christian humanism has redefined grace to be unmerited favour, by which they mean an entitlement to heaven that is independent of genuine faith or repentance. Grace used to be about depending daily on God. It's now used as a justification to avoid continual dependence on God. Repentance, of course, has also been redefined. True repentance is not about trying to avoid consequences for wrongdoing. It's an ongoing realisation of the utter inability of oneself to do good. As Jesus said, there is none good but God, and an urgent reliance on God to do any good whatsoever. The humanist view is based on the premise that believers can do some good on their own but may at times make mistakes, at which point they can avoid its evil consequences by showing regret and wanting to avoid repenting in the future. The result again is that God is only needed every now and then to avoid the consequences of individual sins. Accordingly, the nature of good works has also been subverted by humanism. The Bible draws a distinction between works done to obtain a reward, such as the works of the law and visible works of charity. In contrast to what it calls works of repentance. Since repentance is not about avoiding punishment or obtaining a reward, its works achieve nothing for oneself but only further the glory of God. Anyone can perform the works of the law and works of charity without God, and these are of no value in God's sight. On the other hand, works of repentance can only be performed under the control of the Holy Spirit and demonstrate that one has been born again. Humanists cannot do works of repentance, so they turn to the works of the law and works of charity as a replacement. The bottom line is that humanism has shifted the focus of Christianity away from Christ to oneself. It has become all about feeling good about oneself rather than about realising one's hopeless need of God. This change of focus has dramatically impacted not just the focus of many sermons, but has impacted worship style and the music used in worship. Detractors often call it happy-clappy worship. Instead of exhortations, sermons have become psychological interventions. 
The use of rock and roll in worship, which was once avoided by Christians, has been the most notable change. But more significant than the music itself is the change in the sentiment of the hymns and songs, which took place even before the introduction of rock and roll, which reflects the humanistic change in theology. Whereas for the most part the sentiment originally expressed the greatness of God and man's continued dependence on him, the sentiment is now about celebrating man's attainment of salvation or just praising God without any reference to man's continuing dependence on him. Now the Bible talks about a great falling away that was to take place before the return of Jesus Christ. The rise of humanism and its impact on Christianity in its various forms, in its various denominations, is what this was referring to. A falling away from continual dependence on God to a dependence on the sufficiency of man's beliefs, efforts and devotions. From a different perspective, humanism has abolished the fear of God. It has cast him down from his role as righteous judge so that I no longer need to relate to him in that dreaded capacity. Instead, God is portrayed as being so loving and indulgent that I can now relate to him as an equal who is just happy to have us around. Essentially, Christian humanism is all about self, not God. It seeks the good of self, not the good of God. The glory of self, not the glory of God. It is essentially selfish. It's all about getting to heaven and is happy to use God to achieve this goal. True Christianity is not about getting to heaven. It is about seeking the good of others and the glory of God, be the cost what it may be, even at the cost of heaven. This is why Christianity today has lost its power, because it has put the plans, the power, the glory of self in place of the plans, the power, the glory of God. The character of the average Christian today is not really that much different from that of the non-Christian. Both seek to benefit self, they just seek different avenues by which to do so. Clearly you've described two different types of religion, two different classes within the Christian church. But how's this division been used to bring about a revolution in the churches? So there's actually a number of steps which relate to the earlier three-step, general three-step model for Marxist revolution. The first step is that the underlying differences and definition of an understanding of the action of faith in salvation at first led to subtle changes in theological emphasis. This began the process of subtle theological polarisation, which was below the radar of most churchgoers. As these theological tensions became more pronounced, they became visible and gave rise to a struggle between liberal and conservative classes at various levels within the church. Church members which are not aligned are brought into the struggle with the promotion and adoption of non-traditional worship styles and behaviours and psychology that were more in tune with the liberal theological emphasis of humanists. In the struggle, the liberals were represented as the victims of injustice at the hand of intolerant, unloving and hateful conservatives. That then permitted the uncompromising conservatives to be cancelled, deprived of their church offices or otherwise discriminated against in various ways, in some cases being excommunicated or disfellowshipped from their churches. And this purge of dissenters and the ensuing exit of their sympathisers permitted the normalisation of liberal Christian humanism within the church. At this point, the church was then ready to be used to support the revolution in other areas of society by becoming activists in social justice issues. This process 
was taking place in varying degrees in many different churches from the mid-1980s and all through the 90s, again coinciding with this general time frame. The specific points of theological contention in each case are not actually important as far as carrying out of the revolutionary process was concerned. Having personally gone through this experience at the time, I've been fascinated to see the exact same process take place all over again in the last decade in our society in general. The issues are different, but the same gameplay between liberal and conservatives is carried out. So we have this class struggle, this Marxist revolution taking place in all aspects of society. So how do you see it playing out in this year, in 2024? Well, the revolutionary process has progressed to the point where it is now unstoppable. It does not matter if people are awakening to the fact that something is going on. It's too late. It may be possible to delay the final collapse of society and, and rise of the new order, but that's all. Those behind the revolution are very sensitive to not repeating the mistakes of the French Revolution where they let it get out of hand and lost control, opening the door for Napoleon to step in and put an end to their plans. And so a certain degree of pushback can delay the inevitable. And so, I, and in this context, I note that the theme of this year's World Economic Forum meetings being held right now is that of rebuilding trust. The agents of the New World Order need to rebuild trust in order to not lose control and have the public go along with their plans. So all of these class struggles, all this turmoil in society is all for one purpose. It's for the purpose of overturning the existing order in the US and replace it with one that is compatible with the coming New World Order. That New World Order is not democratic and neither is one in which freedom is an inalienable right, but rather it is a privilege that is granted and take away at the whim of the government. It's an order that's in line with that of the European Union. If the European Union is the remaking of the Holy Roman Empire, it is therefore the beast that was and is not, and yet arises out of the bottomless pit or grave, as depicted in Revelation 13 that we mentioned last time, then the making of an image or replica of the first beast in that same chapter on the part of part of a, a new beast that rises out of the land and becomes all-powerful can only refer to the transformation of the existing American order into a replica of the European order. That is the image to the first beast. And there are only two ways in which that can be achieved. One, by having the US willingly reject democracy and individual liberty and revising its constitution and bill of rights to bring them in line with those of the European Union under the leadership of the Democrats or by having a civil war that can be used to trick Republicans into making constitutional amendments to achieve a similar outcome. The civil war option is the most likely, it is the most natural and fastest way to achieve the desired outcome of the Marxist revolution. In this regard, we can see that Trump's candidacy for presidency is being used to stir both sides of the political divide to breaking point. On one hand, liberals will not accept a Trump presidency, yet their own political persecution of Trump is guaranteeing that he will become the Republican nominee 
and that most likely will win the election. This will lead to a political and possibly military crisis which will forever change the character of America. It is likely in this next year that an economic crisis will coincide with the events surrounding the presidential election to stir up public sentiment further. The Democrats will try to avoid anything that might jeopardise the chance of the win, which is why the Federal Reserve has just pulled back on interest rates and started loaning more money. But that can only hold off economic doldrums for a little longer, at the cost of hyperinflation down the track. At some point, the threatening hyperinflation and looming bank failures will necessitate the banning of cash and roll out central bank digital currencies, which will allow tight control of the population under the control of the Democrats. There is, however, risk that the US election may be called off under the pretext of war with Russia. Both Germany and Sweden have been advising the population to prepare for an imminent war with Russia. Just this week, Germany leaked very detailed plans about how tensions with Russia can be used to provoke a military confrontation at the end of this year and the beginning of the next to coincide with the election. Of course, the plans do not describe how NATO is planning to escalate its provocations of Russia through the use of the Baltic states, but only detail Russia's likely responses to those provocations. The European members of NATO have everything to lose militarily and nothing to gain from war with Russia. But a manufactured crisis of this kind can be very useful for crushing domestic populist political movements that are opposed to the New World Order agenda. And who wins or loses in a war with Russia is not actually really that important at this point. Whether or not a war with Russia will take place, and the risk of this is likely to be used to cancel the election, is only speculation at this point. If the election is cancelled, it will only completely destroy the legitimacy of the current administration and will further encourage Republicans to secede from the Union and reclaim democracy, which will bring about a civil war. If the election does go ahead and Trump is elected, Democrats are likely to create some other political crisis that may require martial law to be imposed, which will have an unknown consequence, but will, at some point, lead to amendments in the US Constitution. In either scenario, the United States will emerge from this crisis a very different beast from how it entered, with a different constitution. This constitutional change does not necessarily take place immediately, but it will take place when the class struggle is finally settled between the Democrats and Republicans. Now, these desired amendments to the US Constitution which will create an image to the European beast, are necessary to implement the mark of the beast. If the beast, as we have mentioned, is the European Union, and the image of the beast is a reconstitution of the US along the principles of the European Union, then the mark of the beast is a test to determine who accepts this European order of things and who does not. And by that I mean who accepts the right of the government to take away your liberty. Now, according to Revelation 13, this will be a test regarding one's right to worship as they please, following some European Union initiative. Now, what this initiative might be is not hard to tell because there are already various initiatives in Europe regarding worship. And just like we saw with COVID, the enforcement of this test would be promoted as being for the common good. Technology will be used to police compliance with the test and enforce penalties for non-compliance. Specifically, access to central bank currencies will be restricted for non-compliant individuals, barring them from buying and selling. The events of this year are likely to be climactic in regard to the revolution taking place 
within the United States. While it's unlikely that the New World Order will be fully imposed in the United States this year, it will set up the circumstances, the scenario that will trigger the final events in this conflict and the submission of the United States to the European agenda. This will either take place um, knowingly or it will take place ignorantly, but the result will be the same. Well, I suppose the most important part of all this is good to know what's going on. We like to say that knowledge is power, but knowledge is useless without acting on it. So what can we do about it? Well, as I mentioned, the process is too far advanced now to be stopped. We should be doing what we can to postpone its inevitable conclusion, but that does not involve agitating for one side or the other in various class struggles that have been intentionally created, as all this does is just further the agenda by adding fuel to the fire. All we can do is to help people understand what is going on, that the society is being divided and set against itself on purpose to destroy democracy and take away our freedoms. As Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Now remember that the book of Revelation in chapter 13 verse 14 tells us that deception is the key means by which the image of the beast is, will be formed in the United States of America. Americans of all classes have been blindly led step by step to the point of no return. They've been deceived by the education system, by their political and religious leaders, the majority of which are working, some ignorantly, some knowingly, some secretly, some openly, in the cause of revolution, little knowing what the result will be. All I can suggest is that if you have children, homeschool them and teach them to think for themselves. Teach them about the past and the history of liberty. Open their eyes to the conflict between tyranny and freedom. Teach them how to become self-reliant. If you are a Christian, avoid presumption. Turn to God. Seek him for wisdom and guidance and truth. Not to men. Not to organisations. The Bible says, Cursed is man that trusteth in man. Whether that man be a pastor, a theologian, a church administrator, a psychologist, a politician, cursed are all those that put their trust in these people. Try to understand the inroads of humanism in your own experience, in your theological understanding, in your worship, and turn from its ways. Jeremiah 6 verse 16 says, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way and walk therein and ye shall find rest for your souls. Discover for yourself what Christianity of the past was like. The Christianity of the great Protestant reformers. The Christianity that broke the 1,000 year chains of religious tyranny that brought us freedom of conscience. You will need a revival of that Christianity in the days coming when the beast and his image combine forces to resurrect the persecutions of the past against all those who will not bow down to their religious authority.